In the gospel, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, and then like a pearl of great price, and then like a haul of fish. But these analogies Jesus uses are not meant so much to describe heaven as to illuminate the attitude a person must have in order to go to heaven. The critical aspect is not the thing of value that Jesus uses as an image of heaven, but rather the action or disposition of the person in relation to it. The first parable describes a man who discovers a buried treasure. Now to us, buried treasures probably sound like something from a pirate story. But the discovery of buried treasures would have been a somewhat commonplace phenomenon in first century Palestine. The reason is that because over the centuries, Israel had been plundered, invaded, and occupied by foreign powers. Israelites would often bury their treasures in fields or caves to to protect them from being confiscated by enemy forces. But of course, sometimes the person who buried the treasure was never able to retrieve it later. And so it sat waiting to be discovered by someone else. In Jesus's time, there was actually a debate among the rabbinical authorities as to who should be entitled to a buried treasure, the person who discovered it or the owner of the property that it was discovered upon. Jesus doesn't seem to take a position on that point of law, however. Instead, he has the man by the field, as that obviates the question. If he is both the owner of the field and the finder of the treasure, he has legal title either way. But think for a moment about the fact that at some prior point in time, someone decided to bury their valuables in that field. Perhaps it was at the time of the exile, when King Nebuchadnezzar was conquering Jerusalem and confiscating the city's wealth as tribute and exiling the leading men back to Babylon. Where would one hide a treasure? Certainly the person wouldn't want to bury the treasure on a choice piece of farmland because there would be a good chance that someone else would dig it up while cultivating the land. And certainly he wouldn't try to bury it on a piece of land near a city or town or any, or any place else where someone might decide to build a house or a building. He wouldn't want someone to happen upon his treasure while excavating a foundation. Obviously, a person trying to hide a treasure would bury it on a plot of land that was as undesirable as possible to decrease the chance that anybody else would ever discover his secret treasure. So while the man in the parable is going to lay claim to a great treasure, he is also acquiring in the process what is likely a fairly worthless piece of land. The, the, the fact that the man had to sell everything he had to buy in order to per, or he owned in order to purchase it just tells us that he was probably very poor to begin with. Yet in purchasing the land, he would have been assuming the obligation to maintain it and to pay taxes on it. This tells us something very important about the Christian life. The good things that Jesus promises us come only with very serious duties and obligations. As Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. As Christians, our lives should be filled with great joys. If you ask me, faithful Christians, all things being equal, are happier people. Studies, in fact, bear this out. 
But the Christian life also means aspiring to very high standards of piety, of charity, of morality. It means being willing to suffer and be persecuted for the sake of Christ and his law. We ought to have no inherent expectation of cushiness or contentment in this life. The only true happiness we are promised comes to us in heaven. The second parable tells us of a merchant who discovers for sale a pearl of great price. Now, a pearl of great price has become a kind of iconic biblical expression in English owing to the popularity of the King James Bible. But great price is probably not the best translation of the original Greek. A better phrase would simply be a pearl which was very precious. In Jesus' time, pearls were often considered like a charm or a talisman. People valued pearls as personal treasures, not merely for their monetary value, but as signs of God's grace. Although the man here was a pearl merchant, the implication is that he doesn't want this pearl as an investment so that he can later resell it. Rather, there was something that was personally attractive to him about this particular pearl. He wanted it for keeps. So much so that he was willing to liquidate all of his other assets in order to purchase it. And unlike the man buying the field, we are meant to assume, as a merchant, his assets were in fact considerable. As a business plan, putting all of your money into one pearl would be a mistake. The old adage of every smart investor is this, diversify, diversify, diversify. But this parable is meant to show us that we must be single-minded in our desire to pursue the things of God. It also tells us that we can only attain the kingdom of heaven by shedding ourselves of worldly attitudes and attachments. If we live according to the valuation that the world places upon things, then we will fail as Christians. The utilitarian logic of the marketplace is not the gospel. Finally, we have the parable of the hall of fish. Jesus tells us that the net is thrown into the sea and collects fish of every kind. It's only when the boat comes ashore that the good and bad fish are sorted. Jesus is making an obvious eschatological metaphor. God will sit in judgment of all souls at the end of time. But the takeaway for us as Christians is that we have to accept that God's net will pull in all kinds. A church or a parish is not a club for people who all think and talk and dress alike. Yes, we should all share the faith and morals of the church, and hopefully we do. But we know that a parish brings together people who are at different stages of the Christian journey. People who struggle with different things in their lives. People who have not all been formed in the same way. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis said that it is always the goal of the devil to undermine a Christian polity organized by geographical parishes, which is, of course, the Catholic model, in favor of the congregational model, which most Protestants follow. Because, as Lewis says, parishes are gathering of persons rather than preferences. Whereas the congregational system makes each church into a kind of club. And finally, if all goes well for the devil, into a coterie or a faction. Christian charity should bind us together as a church, and especially as a parish family. That doesn't mean that we are blind to one another's faults and failings. Sometimes fraternal correction is called for. But we recognize that as the body of Christ, we are meant to grow in holiness together. The fingers don't grow by severing themselves from the arm. 
Rather, both go, grow in conjunction with each other and with the rest of the body. So too in the Christian life. We make the biggest strides towards heaven and we allow ourselves to be pulled up together in one net. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.